Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. In the last episode, we went through a general overview of party politics in 1840. Today, we're going to focus in on one aspect of the politics of the time and a key tool in garnering political support, namely the spoils system. While we think of our time being a time of corrupt political favors, in some ways the antebellum period had us beat. The federal government had started out very small, with only the cabinet members and a few clerks based in the capital city, and with postmasters spread out across 13 states along the eastern seaboard, as well as a few customs officials and lighthouse keepers in a few key maritime areas. We also had diplomatic relations with a few major European nations such as Britain, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. By 1840, the nation stretched far into the interior of the continent. The number of states had more than doubled, and we now had ports on the Great Lakes as well as along the Gulf Coast. The army had expanded to fight Indians as well as address any issues that may arise along our borders, such as the various points of agitation along the U.S.-Canadian border in the late 1830s, which we shall discuss in a later episode. Our diplomatic corps had likewise expanded to accommodate existing nations that we had opened bilateral relations with, including Prussia and Russia, as well as newly formed nations such as Mexico and Colombia. Despite this expansion, the president was still responsible for appointing all of the officials down to local postmasters. Think about where you live and your local post office. That person behind the desk would have been appointed by the president under this system. Needless to say, the president, both logistically and politically, could not fill all of those positions with individuals that he knew personally. He had to rely on suggestions and recommendations, as well as interviews with potential candidates. Therein lay the major headache of William Henry Harrison's one-month presidency. Harrison's assumption of the presidency was only the third time in American history at that point where the incoming president was from an opposing party to his predecessor. Thomas Jefferson had ousted John Adams in 1800, Andrew Jackson did the same to Adams' son in 1828, and now Martin Van Buren would have to vacate the White House for Harrison. The first time this changeover had occurred, there was some discussion about whether Jefferson either could or should replace all the offices in his purview with supporters. In some key cases, he did. However, for the most part, the changeover was gradual, as officeholders vacated offices on their own choosing. Jackson, on the other hand, after a much more personally contentious election, cleared house upon taking office. His advisors saw this power as a political tool that could be utilized to coerce leaders to support Jackson and his policies, and used it to the fullest extent. Indeed, Harrison himself was one of the victims of this changeover, as he was ousted from his recently acquired post as U.S. Minister to Columbia by a Jackson supporter. The Whigs of 1840, modeling their strategy after that which had been so successful to date for the Jacksonians, likewise adopted this policy of, to the victors, go the spoils. The only thing standing in their way of a full exploitation of this was William Henry Harrison himself. As early as 1835, Harrison was writing that, quote, I set out with a determination to make no pledges and goes further in his speech in Dayton, Ohio, on October 1st, 1840, by saying, I have certainly refused pledges, 
because the effect produced by them is always pernicious. There would be each party trying to exceed the other in praises, and calling those who would make such pledges auctioneers. Though Harrison may have refused to make promises either of committing to policies or to appointments in order to garner support, it appears that his supporters were not afraid to make promises on his behalf. Thomas Corwin notes in his letter to Senator John J. Crittenden on November 20, 1840, that, quote, You ought to remember that I've made more than 100 regular orations to the people this summer, that I have, first and last, addressed at least 700,000 people, men, women, and children, dogs, Negroes, and Democrats inclusive, that I have made promises of great amendments in the administration of public affairs, and I do not wish to be made out liar, fool, or both, by the history of the first six months of the new era. A few days prior, and even more boldly, U.S. Representative and Industrialist Abbott Lawrence writes from Boston to Thomas Ewing that, quote, We have chosen you into General Harrison's cabinet. Therefore, prepare yourself to go to Washington. There is no indication, either in the letter or in available primary resources that I've seen to date, that Harrison was consulted in any way about this decision at this point. Whig leaders across the nation saw Harrison's election as a means of rewarding their friends and associates, as well as building a larger power base, both for the party and, more self-servingly, for themselves. Once in office, Harrison found himself trying to strike a balance between his freedom to make decisions as he saw fit and bending to the political will of his subordinates, as well as other major party leaders. One doctrine that was popular with Whigs was that the president would put all major decisions before the cabinet and would abide by the decision of the cabinet with each member, including the president, having one vote in the matter. However, despite his having professed that are, at the very least, not publicly objecting that it was not to be his policy as well, Harrison was soon pushing that policy aside. During a cabinet meeting soon after the inauguration, Secretary of State Daniel Webster informed Harrison that the cabinet had decided upon James Wilson, former Speaker of the State House in New Hampshire, as the new governor of the Iowa Territory. Harrison, however, had other ideas. His former aide-de-camp and private secretary, John Chambers, seemed like just the candidate for the post, and he informed his cabinet as such. Naturally, they protested as their preference overruled his or so they thought. Harrison wrote something on a piece of paper and asked Webster to read it aloud, and thus he read, quote, William Henry Harrison, President of the United States. Then Harrison firmly said, quote, William Henry Harrison, President of the United States, tells you gentlemen that by, insert expletive here, John Chambers shall be Governor of Iowa, after which, John Chambers did indeed become governor of the Iowa Territory. Even with Henry Clay, Harrison was beginning to draw limits. One of Clay's correspondents had predicted in 1839 that Clay would be, quote, the actual president of the United States, should Harrison win, a sentiment that the correspondent said was shared by many. And in his heavy-handed dealings in the Senate, Clay was certainly acting as if it was his government to run. It was obvious that Clay intended to bully Harrison to get his way, much as he had done James Madison many years before. However, Harrison was no James Madison. He began a letter to Clay on the 13th of March, 1841, by saying, quote, 
you use the privilege of a friend to lecture me, and I will take the same liberty with you. You are too impetuous. Much as I would rely upon your judgment, there are others whom I must consult, and in many cases, to determine adversely to your suggestions. Not only was he spelling out the nature of their relationship as president and presidential advisor, rather than president in name only and actual power behind the throne, as Clay and other Whigs wished, but he concluded the letter by saying, quote, I preferred for many reasons this mode of answering your note to a conversation in the presence of others. Harrison was thus dictating not only the level of influence that Clay would have over his administration, but the mode of how he would like to deal with such matters moving forward, by letter rather than by conversation. Now, the president unilaterally making decisions in terms of appointments had quite recently resulted in some trouble in the form of Samuel Swartwout, a close associate of Jackson's, the seventh president opted to appoint Swartwout to the important post of collector of the Port of New York in 1829 over the objections of Van Buren, and Swartwout remained in the position until well into Van Buren's term, when Swartwout, at the expiration of his term as collector in 1838, departed from New York for England. As soon as he was safely out of the reach of the U.S. government, it was discovered by looking through the books that Swartwout had embezzled $1.2 million while in office. That figure is in late 1830s money, which, translated into 2016 currency, is around $30.7 million. Despite his having been against the appointment to begin with, the Swartwout scandal was one of the many points on which Van Buren was attacked in the election of 1840. Harrison, from all indications, had intentions to push for some reforms in the spoil system. Indeed, one of the first and only actions that he took while in office was to issue through Secretary of State Daniel Webster a circular to all the department heads on March 20th, instructing them to inform, quote, all officers and agents in your department of the public service that partisan interference in popular elections, whether of state officers or officers of this government, or the payment of any contribution or assessments on salaries or official compensation for party or election purposes, will be regarded by him, Harrison, as a cause of removal. Henning to the Swartwild Affair, the circular goes on to say that, quote, the President wishes it further to be announced and distinctly understood that from all collecting and dispersing officers, promptitude in rendering accounts, and entire punctuality in paying balances will be rigorously exacted. In his opinion, it is time to return, in this respect, to the early practice of the government and to hold any degree of delinquency on the part of those entrusted with the public money just cause of immediate dismissal. This certainly sounds like a tough resolve and likely would have been implemented in most of the government offices. However, if Harrison was truly committed to civil service reform, the largest Aegean stable to clean would have been the post office department. The position of postmaster general hadn't amounted to much until Amos Kendall. As mentioned in the last episode, Amos Kendall was an editor who rode the Jackson bandwagon to Washington and was elevated to the position of Postmaster General by Jackson when the position was vacated by William T. Barry in 1835. 
Kendall would demonstrate to all how the position and the department could be used as a political tool to reward supporters in various parts of the nation, as well as an instrument to promote the party in power. Harrison's postmaster general was Francis Granger of New York. Granger was closely tied to Thurlow Weed, the New York political boss, and thus was in the perfect position to act according to Weed's directions. Oddly enough, Weed originally talked about Granger becoming Secretary of the Navy, but the Postmaster General position was the one with more political influence. Once installed, Granger set about reorganizing the department to take personnel decisions away from the incumbent Assistant Postmaster General, who was a Democrat, and postmasters who had supported Van Buren in the election were cleared out to be replaced by loyal Harrison Whigs. Indeed, this was one of the instances where Harrison asserted himself into rewarding the spoils to personal friends. General Solomon Van Rensselaer, a veteran of the War of 1812 and family friend of the Harrisons, had been postmaster of Albany, New York since 1822 until he was removed by Van Buren. Harrison had him reappointed to the post upon taking office and likely would have justified it as providing a due service to a veteran. However, just to show that no good deed goes unpunished, Van Rensselaer, after he and his daughter had been entertained by the Harrisons for a number of days following the inauguration, made his feelings about his reappointment at the Albany Post Office known at the farewell dinner Harrison gave them. When Harrison said to the assembled party that, quote, it was a small matter in Mr. Van Buren to take from General Van Rensselaer that pitiful office. The New York general chimed in with what his daughter described as a, quote, stinging derisive tone to state, quote, and you have restored me to that same pitiful office. No one ever said doling out political appointments was fun, certainly not Harrison, as it was a task that was sure not to please everyone. Perhaps being in the hot seat of having to decide who got what they wanted and who would end up disappointed was one of the reasons Harrison wanted to change up the rules of the spoils game. Harrison was able to assert himself because he accurately surveyed the political scene and saw that, for all the work that others had done, he was the one left holding the cards. Whigs dominated Congress, with all of them, including Henry Clay, having gone on record in their staunch, unquestioned support of him. Harrison had announced that he would be a one-term president during the campaign, and thus did not have to worry about playing the game in order to get re-elected. He had proven himself throughout his career as being someone who valued merit-based appointments, especially as he had suffered at times because of appointments being made on the basis of politics. The only potential blowback for him was that Whigs would suffer in the polls in the 1842 midterms. But if he couldn't take a firm hand and lead the administration forward, then that would likely happen anyway. This was the time to roll the dice, take the chance, and forge ahead on a new path based more on the example of the founding generation and less on the baseness of the Jacksonian spoil system. This was Harrison being Harrison, and he would change the course of the nation by, insert expletive here, well, we all know what happened. Tyler was thrown out of the Whig Party, and the Whigs suffered a loss in the midterm elections of over half their strength in Congress. John Quincy Adams had thus accurately predicted that, with his defeat in 1828, had also ended, quote, certainly never to rise again in my day, the system of internal improvement by means of national energies. 
the spoil system continued unabated, as noted by Carl Russell Fish in his 1904 study entitled The Civil Service and the Patronage, where he concludes that, under the Harrison-Tyler administration, quote, either willingly or perforce, they permitted a repetition of the deeds which they had so violently condemned. The practice would continue on through antebellum administrations and go forward into the Gilded Age, where it grew to such blatant and deplorable levels that civil service reform was finally enacted in the latter part of the century. How far Harrison would have gone with reform, or how successful any intentions that he had towards reform would have been, are just a hypothetical parlor game now. One thought that came to me in the process of working on the script for this episode is how much of Harrison's personal experience went into his thoughts on civil service reform. It's not hard to imagine the injustice that he felt had been done against the family of his son Sims by the $12,000 debt assigned to him due to his having cashed a draft that bounced in the Vincennes land office all those years ago. Harrison struggles to seek a reduction of the debt, then to pay off the debt following Sims's death, must have especially seemed a bitter memory considering that Swartwout had absconded with over a million in public funds and would likely not pay back one cent. As noted by Norma Lois Peterson, Harrison during his brief tenure seemed especially interested in ensuring that treasury officials, a department under which port collectors and the land office fell, were not unjustly removed from office, but were held more accountable. Ultimately, when Tyler took over, Harrison's appointed Secretary of the Treasury Thomas Ewing would equal Granger in clearing Democrats out of his department to make way for Whigs, so much so that he would acquire the nickname of Butcher prior to his leaving office in September 1841. Would this purge have happened with Harrison holding the reins of power? Possibly not, as Harrison was working to take charge of his administration, while his successor Tyler was struggling just to avoid being called acting president. Motivated by personal experience of having suffered unjust removals and financial hardships while others ran rampant in abusing the public trust, Harrison might just have been willing and able to achieve some reform by, insert expletive here. Again, this is just speculation on my part. But this notion may give credence to and explain his interest in the subject. The spoil system was especially important to citizens of a nation still reeling under an economic downturn which had begun in 1837, just after Van Buren assumed office. That's where we'll pick up in the next episode, which I would like to call Panics, Specie, and Divorce, Oh My! An Introduction to Jacksonian Finance. As always, thank you so much for listening. Should you have any questions, comments, or future show ideas, please feel free to contact me at Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, for the sources used for this episode, as well as other related material, please be sure to check out the blog for the podcast at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. The podcast is on iTunes, so if you'd like to help to bring in more listeners, please take a moment to write a review on iTunes. Just doing the star rating will help to push us up in the charts for visibility and to have more folks join us on this examination of a lesser-known part of American history. Thanks again.